Ephesians, the second chapter. I'll be coming from verse, verses 13 through 16. Bit of a repeat from next week, but I want to uh, emphasize some aspects of this text and apply it now um, in a way that kind of brings a uh, microscopic <laughs> view of the text, uh, kind of complementing in a way James's overall robust theological teaching of it. So I want to focus in on a few things. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16. When you, when you got it, say, I got it. Thank you. <laughs> it reads, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, our children's church and our crossroads are dismissed. Oh, I like those shoes, man. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said, I want to focus in on a particular aspect of this text, and it's the the reconciliation aspect, specifically along the lines of race and ethnicity. Uh, James actually raised an interesting question um, a few nights ago at a gathering uh, with some other family and friends. He said, uh, is is there a risk of pigeonholing Wayne in terms of him maybe falling into the category of being the the race guy, the one that's always called upon to talk about race, racial justice, racial reconciliation? And those that were there kind of came to the consensus that, yes, there is a risk. And if I'm honest, I'm aware of the risk. I'm aware of the fact that there is a danger in me being the black guy on staff, being the one always bringing up and talking about this issue. There is a risk. And I would feel a lot less comfortable with that if it weren't for the fact that I'm not the only one talking about this from the pulpit or from the congregation. I'm grateful to God that we as a church are aware of these issues and that we're not afraid necessarily to tackle these issues. But I wanna challenge us even more because as welcoming as a place that I believe Riverside is to people and others that look like me, I want us to lean into that more. I don't want us just to be comfortable with being the welcoming, warm place. I want us to really dive in and lean into the messy work of racial justice, and reconciliation. So would you pray with me um, as, I, as I speak from the word this morning, and I pray that I can lovingly challenge us on that front. Father, I thank you once again for this opportunity to share from your word. I realize, God, uh, my weakness. I realize, God, my frailty. I realize, God, the heavy weight of speaking and proclaiming your word and dissecting it and trying to rightly divide the word of truth uh, and edifying your people. It's a heavy thing. It's a heavy task. 
And I'm aware of that, God. And I'm aware, God, that in and of myself, I can't do it. But God, with you, I know that I can stand here flat-footed and proclaim your truth. I pray, God, that you would help me, that you would ground me in your word, ground me in your love, ground me in your grace. And God, help me, Lord, even as I wrestle even now with anxiety and other things, that you would just help me, Lord, to rest in you as your son. I pray, God, for the congregation, that you would open up our ears and our hearts and make us receptive to what you have to say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, it's looking real Christmassy in here, isn't it? I, 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 I love, my goodness, all we need now is Christmas music playing. Um, maybe not while I'm speaking, but I, I didn't think that I would see in the headlines around Christmas uh, Kanye West, Kyrie Irving, and anti-Semitism at the same time. It's a very interesting combo. Kanye West, if you don't know who he is, very well-known hip-hop artist, probably one of the greatest of all time in some people's eyes. Kyrie Irving is a well-known basketball player, plays for the Brooklyn Nets at the moment, is known for his vast skill in playing basketball. You wouldn't ordinarily see those two in the headlines together, you know, wildly different professions. And it's even stranger to see them in the headlines for anti-Semitism. It is. Kyrie in particular, I want to focus in on him, he got into hot water because he shared a documentary on his Twitter account that included some anti-Semitic tropes. Um, for instance, you know, the, the idea or the notion that, you know, uh, the Jewish people run everything and they run Hollywood and they run all of the financial aspects of our economy and our society. And there was also some uh, portions in the documentary that uh, in some ways denied the Holocaust, stuff like that. Uh, Kyrie has since apologized profusely for the unintentional hurt that he caused the Jewish community. Uh, but his reasoning behind sharing the documentary, he would argue, is that he was actually searching for his identity as a black man. Now, I want to say that I sympathize with Kyrie and with others in the black community on that front. Because in some ways, truth be told, one of the biggest struggles right now, I mean, it's been a struggle for a long time, but in particular right now, a lot of black people are wrestling with the fact that their identity, their, their history in America by and large was stripped completely from them. And there are others, unfortunately, who are looking for that identity in the wrong places. What drew Kyrie in particular to this documentary was a belief system that is growing and on the move now called Black Hebrew Israelism. Has anybody ever heard of that? For those of, you, for those of you that don't know what that is, I'll give you the short version. Black Hebrew Israelites essentially believe that black people, those of African descent, are the original descendants of ancient Israel. And that the fair-skinned Jewish people that we pretty much all know now are European imposters that, that displace them. That's the central belief. Now, again, I bring this up because on some level I sympathize. I understand, I get it. As a black man, a lot of identity and history was taken from us. But as a blood-bought believer and as a member of the body of Christ, I reject the assertion of black Hebrew Israelites. One, because historically and logically and theologically, it's a blatant falsehood. 
One, let me get that out the way. It's totally false. It's been disproven. And there are a lot of black Christian apologists that have done great, amazing work in disproving this claim. But the other reason is because I know, as a believer, that my identity and my empowerment as a black man, and as well as any other ethnic group, it does not need to come at the expense of another ethnic group. It doesn't. Through Christ, God has reconciled all believers to himself and to each other. We all have a place at the table, fam. I said we all have a place at the table, fam. Where there was once no peace, Jesus, through his bloody work, has made peace. He is the peacemaker. And that's really what I want to settle on and deal with this morning. His role as the peacemaker, the mystery, one of the mysteries of Christmas is the fact that Jesus came to earth in the form of a little child. And that little child would become our peacemaker. This this mistaken view of ethnic pride and identity at the expense of other people, it, it seems oddly enough to be at the heart of the tension that we see in our text, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this brings me to my first point, total alienation, total alienation. Here's the dilemma. The dilemma is both physical and spiritual. Now, spiritually, both Jews and Gentiles were at one point separated from God. Both both groups were. Now, it'd be easy for us to kind of you know, move on from there and go right to verse 13, right? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. That's great news. Amen. Let's go home. But the thing is, Paul spends a substantial amount of time dealing with the physical element of this dilemma. He doesn't just skip past that. There's a physical dimension of separation here, and it's specifically a physical distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12, it should be on your screen. It says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, as James pointed out last week, the Jews would often refer to the Gentiles as the foreskins. It was a very derogatory term, but it was used to point to a physical attribute of the Gentiles that supposedly made them unworthy of inclusion within the Jewish community. I'm gonna say that again, because if you pay attention to that statement, there are parallels to today. The Jews using that derogatory term pointed to a physical attribute of the Gentiles that supposedly made them unworthy of inclusion in their community and by proxy, genuine relationship with God. Because of this physical distinction, this physical attribute, one group of people was entirely alienated from another group of people. Does that sound familiar? 
alienated, alienated from the commonwealth, as, as, as it's translated in the ESV. I think in many ways, the reality of community-wide alienation has gotten lost in much of the evangelical world. We're, we're real good at the individual aspect of salvation and grace and redemption. It's almost if you could read Ephesians 2 and 12 differently. And I have it here on the screen, and I have EV, which uh, stands for Evangelical Version. <laughs> Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice what's, what I struck through there. Because if we're honest, because of the hyper-individualized uh, emphasis on salvation and grace, we often don't talk about the community-wide alienation of people. But I would argue that black believers in particular, and other minority groups, but I, I would dare not be prideful enough to think that I could speak for all minorities. I'm just going to talk about me and my experience. I would argue that black believers have a unique, not elevated, not exclusive, but a unique resonance with the phrase alienated from the commonwealth. Because historically in America, even as fellow believers, we were alienated from the commonwealth of our white brothers and sisters. We were. In many ways, we still are today. I, I want to give an example from history. Um, if you've not read it yet, uh, I recommend a book by Jamar Tisby called The Color of Compromise. He does a phenomenal job of really breaking down in a lot of ways the church's complicity in the racial history of America. But there's a historical factor that I want to bring to light. In 1667, in what was then the English colony of Virginia, the Virginia General Assembly, that was the main political governing body of that time, it was made up of Anglican men, was being pressured by the public to address whether baptism made slaves free. Now, the longstanding Christian tradition in England was that believers, because we were spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ, could not enslave each other. That was actually the long-standing Christian tradition of that time. Now, the pressure that these Anglican brothers were feeling was twofold. On one hand, you had missionaries that were actually pressuring the slave owners to evangelize their slaves. But on the other hand, the slave owners did not want to lose out on their free labor or the profits. So the pressure was twofold. Yeah, we need to evangelize these African slaves, but at the same time, if we evangelize them based on the tradition, we lose, we lose our profit. So as a compromise, the Virginia Assembly enacted a law stating that baptism wouldn't equate to freedom for slaves, but that they would instead remain slaves after their conversion. Jamar Tisby put it this way, missionaries, ministers, and slave owners actually encouraged African Christians in America to be content with their spiritual liberation and to obey their earthly masters. Now, you, you may look at that and ask, how in the world could they fathom a compromise like that? How in the world, what, what is warped, so warped about their theology that they could even be comfortable with justifying something like this. 
Uh, theologian Mark Knoll has some thoughts. There's a quote from him that I want to share. He says, as a revival movement, evangelicalism transformed people within, the, within their inherited social setting, but worked only partial and selective transformation on the social settings themselves. It transformed people within their inherited social setting. In other words, what they were born into, what they came into. But it only worked partial or selective transformation on the social settings themselves. Jamar Tisby also says this in another quote, evangelicalism focused on individual conversion and piety. Within this evangelical framework, one could adopt an evangelical expression of Christianity, yet remain uncompelled to confront institutional injustice. In other words, I'm content because me and God are good, but that leaves me uncompelled to address the other form of reconciliation, which is horizontal. That's the danger of such an individualized theology, such an individualized way of thinking about God's redemptive work. Family, we can't remain uncompelled. We cannot remain uncompelled. Now, I don't come at this from a political perspective or anything of that nature. That's the narrative of Scripture. The narrative of Scripture says to us, we can't remain uncompelled. God's care and God's saving of individuals did not come at the expense of confronting injustice. Just read through the prophets. Read through the prophets. Some of the main complaints <laughs> that God levied against his own people through the mouths of the prophets was, you are treating your neighbor wrongly. You are oppressing folk that live right around the corner from you. Jesus' honing work was itself a direct confrontation, an ultimate victory over not just individual sin, but as we pointed out early in Ephesians, against all unjust powers, all unjust authorities, all unjust rulers, all unjust systems and institutions. It was a victory over all those things. That doesn't mean that we get militant and get compelled to fight some political culture war in order for Jesus' power to be demonstrated. I pointed out a few weeks ago that one of the greatest demonstrations of God's power was your own conversion. But along with that is also the power of the reconciliation that his blood bought. There is a power in the horizontal work that was done through Jesus' death on the cross. Look at what Paul highlights about what God did to unify two diametrically opposed ethnic groups. You couldn't get any more diametrically opposed than the Jews and the Gentiles. There was literally a wall of hostility. Hostility. It wasn't just this peaceful boundary, you know, that you find between state lines. It wasn't like, you know, the state line between Georgia and South Carolina. It's relatively peaceful. There was a hostility in this dividing wall. And this brings me to my second point. Bloody reconciliation. Bloody reconciliation. It was bloody. It was a violent peace that was purchased by Jesus. I want us to focus in on the aggressive and violent language that's used in verses 13 through 16. Verse, ter verse 13, you see the blood of Christ. 
Verse 14, you see broken down and dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, you see abolishing and making peace. Verse 16, you see through the cross. That, that image in and of itself is violent. And killing the hostility. There's a lot of violent language here. And notice that this language isn't being used in the context of war. It's being used in the context of racial ethnic tension. It's, it's right there. It's not in the context of war. It's in the context of racial ethnic tension. And in the midst of this racial divide, Jesus brought two groups of far-off people, both of whom didn't really realize how far off they actually were. <laughs> and he brings them together. And in verse 14, it says he made them one. Made them one. Breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, James, did a, you did a phenomenal job, brother, of talking about and breaking down what the, the significance of the phrase dividing wall was. Just for review, because I want to sound almost as smart as he does. Um, in, t- <laughs> in terms of a visual picture, Paul might have had in mind the literal wall in the temple of Jerusalem that divided Jews from Gentiles. But contextually, as he pointed out, and I, I wholeheartedly agree, Paul was using this dividing wall as a metaphor for the law, for the Mosaic law. The Jews, in in some senses, saw this Mosaic law as like this protective hedge to keep them away from the Gentiles. We got to protect ourselves from those dirty, unclean folk over there, right? And we're going to use the law to do that. Now, that's not what the law was originally intended to do. It's not. It wasn't for the purpose of protecting the Jews from the Gentiles. It was to keep them pure as an example to all the other nations. It wasn't meant to be a fence, right? But yeah, that's how the Jews felt in a lot of ways. We're going to use this law to keep us from those people. That sounds familiar to me too. That sounds like segregation in a lot of ways. That sounds like the slave codes. That sounds like Jim Crow. That sounds like redlining. That sounds like a lot of the legal things that were enacted in this country in an effort to separate and protect one group of people from another. But thank God, in verse 15, part of Jesus' work was to abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this phrase, I believe, can be better understood in terms of the distinction that Paul often makes between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Because Jesus himself said, I didn't come to abolish or completely do away with the law. I came to fulfill it. And Paul picks up that argument. He says, listen, it's not not necessarily the spirit of the law that's done away with. It's the letter of the law. It's, It's the function of the law in terms of how the covenant is regulated. The law no longer serves as the dividing line that allows people in and out. It's no longer the law. The Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled and the new covenant is now in play, which means that the dividing wall of the law has been destroyed. So the Jews can no longer use the law as an excuse 
not to engage with the Gentiles. That excuse is gone. We live in a reality now where Jesus in his flesh has forcefully brought together two groups that were diametrically opposed. That's what making peace really is. I've said this before, I don't know if I've said this from the pulpit. You all understand the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, right? Peacekeepers, and I've, I struggle with this, so I can, I can talk about myself if I can't talk about any of y'all. Peacekeepers have a tendency to avoid conflict at all costs. All we really want is peace, but not a righteous peace, not a peace that's uh, due to justice and reconciliation. We just, want, we, we just don't want a whole lot of rocking the boat or rabble-rousing. Let, let, can't we all just get along and can't we just, you know, sing kumbaya and this and that? But peacemakers have an understanding that peace does not mean the absence of conflict. It does not mean the absence of struggle. It does not mean the absence of disagreement. Really, peacemaking is based on the principle of justice. When peace is made, that means that both parties, justice has been done. And the, the, the peace that comes as a result of that is a righteous peace, not a false sense of it. And this actually brings me to my third point. Because by the example of the peacemaker himself, God's called us to be peacemakers. You remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? And for what purpose? For what purpose? Jesus says, or Paul says rather, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, one new man in place of the two. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, as white people, as black people, as Asian people, as Hispanic people, as any other race or ethnic group, that we lose our individuality, that we lose our ethnic expression, that we lose what makes us unique. That doesn't mean that we lose any of that. It's not necessarily this, this blending into an amorphous blob that has no distinctions. That's not what it means. What it means is the dividing lines and laws and rules and regulations and cultures and customs that kept other folk out have been done away with. We're now one body. <laughs> it's the mystery of Christmas, actually. We are one body. Listen, uh, I, I, I offer myself up to be on some of y'all's postcards that you send to family. Let's see if we can shake stuff up. Oh, this is the, oh, wait, who is this? You know, that's, that's my brother, mom, dad, that's my brother, don't worry about it. That, that's, that's what we're called to. As a body, that's what we're called to. I, I am called to love on all of you all's kids like I love my own. So that means I go to bat for an Azure, I go to bat I could start naming kids, I'm gonna be here all day. I could go to bat for a Luke, I could go to bat for any of the children here as much as my own kids, okay? I'm Uncle Wayne, y'all, how y'all doing? Because in Christ, we have been made one. 
That's the beauty of what he did. The dividing walls of racism have been destroyed. They have, but that doesn't mean that the work is done. It doesn't mean that the work of reconciliation is complete. Like I said before, there would be a risk of me being the only one talking about race were it not for the fact that people other than me are already engaged in the conversation. But that doesn't mean that we can't further engage the conversation, further engage the process. Does it get tiring? Of course it does. I, I, can, I can attest to that. <laughs> it does get tiring. Seems like at some moments, folk come up with new reasons to disengage. And I've shared about my personal conviction of remaining in this conversation, remaining in this space. My personal conviction is I'm one avenue of grace that God can use from my side of the table to be there for folk on the other side of the table who genuinely want to engage and empathize. If I walk away in frustration, and if I walk away giving up and feeling like nobody's listening, if I walk away, and it's tempting to do, if I'm being honest, but if I walk away, that's just one less avenue of God's grace in this work, in this ministry of reconciliation that all of us have been called to. My loving challenge today to us, family, is to get our hands dirty together in this work. There should be blood on our hands. Blood in the sense that Christ's work to bring us together, to make us one, was a bloody work. It was. It wasn't easy. It wasn't simple. It was hard. It was raw. It was authentic. It exposed a lot. But it was worth it. And it was beautiful. And it was gracious and uplifting and fulfilling in so many different ways. I don't want to just leave you, though, with, with that challenge. Some of you might be wondering, what are, some, what are some practical ways that I can maybe engage this even more? I, I think one practical way, and James actually alluded to this last week when he read off some of the names of your family members. You remember some of the names he read off? Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Mary McLeod Bethune, Sojourner Truth, right? I've got a few others, Fannie Lou Hamer, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Lemuel Haynes, Charles Octavius Booth. There's, there's such a wide range of black theologians and apologists and your brothers and sisters in the faith who have stories about their efforts in staying in the work, in enduring. Th these are your family members. In Christ, these are your family members. I would encourage you, listen, read up on them. You know, look, look, look at what they dealt with. Actually dig into their stories. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say or every conclusion that they come to. But as family, we got to put in the work of really understanding each other. Amen. I would also say do what you can to intentionally engage with people who don't look like you. Now, it doesn't mean be creepy. <laughs> you know, I don't want you coming up to me after church like, hey, Wayne, listen, we really got to get you all over the church. To, uh, to, 
I would love to come over to your house for dinner. Don't get me wrong. Me and my family love engaging with people. Well, me and Fee more so. The girls, they're getting there. <laughs> you know. But not in a way that's like creepy or makes people feel like a project necessarily. But in ways, whether it is inviting people over to dinner, whether it is engaging with people on your job, people of color on your job, in your social circles, hey, be more intentional about engaging them, hearing stories, understanding their perspectives. And there's a slew of other ways, but I don't want to get into the weeds of that. But listen, if, if, if you're looking for more ideas, come talk to me. Come talk to James. Talk to Jay Will. Those of you that know him, those of you that don't know him, Jay Will is one of the dopest people I know. Get to know that brother, okay? Talk to us. Ask questions. Because this is the work that we're all called to. I want to leave you with uh, this verse from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 and 18. Actually, 5 and 18 through 19, rather. (laughs) It says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, this is the mystery. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What better way to express that message than by being about the work. That's the mystery of Christmas, y'all. One of the mysteries, at least. You know, this is part one, it's a whole series. (laughs) One of the mysteries is the fact that Jesus came as the peacemaker, the peacemaker. He made peace, not just between God and man, but between us and each other. And we're called to be peacemakers and follow his example. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word that brings life, your word, God, that offers us encouragement, that challenges us, that exposes us. Lord, that, as as Scripture says, divides between soul and spirit and is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it cuts on us but it's a good work. I thank you, Lord God, that we have the opportunity, Lord, to hear your word, to wrestle with what your word calls us to. And then this day and time, Lord God, we, we desperately need to wrestle more, to reckon more. God, with our history as a nation, with our history, God, as, as people who are blood-bought by you, would you help us in this work? Help us, Lord, to be more mindful of each other, to be more understanding, to be more empathetic. Lord, to really lean into the reality that in Christ Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down and that we are one. We've been made one. You have made peace and you've given us a unity that we can stand in, but that we also need to work to maintain. So would you help us in that endeavor? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.